welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Fred Biscaglia as my guest here on the Anti-Architect Podcast. I pronounced that okay, you right? Perfect. Nice. <laughs> Fred is the Managing Director and Senior Vice President with JLL Project and Development Services. With more than 30 years of experience, Fred provides executive oversight for construction and project management, specifically for large-scale corporate real estate projects in the financial, insurance, and law sectors. JLL, Jones Lang LaSalle, for any of those that don't know, is one of the leading professional real estate companies in the world with over 75,000 employees specializing in all things real estate, brokerage, investment, management, technology, sustainability, client solutions, etc. Fred is very well known in the New York real estate project management world and as among the best. He has managed the redesign and densification of over a million square feet in Lower Manhattan for Condé Nast, as well as the consolidation of Raymond James into their headquarters, the Carlisle Capital headquarters in One Vanderbilt, MetLife's headquarters, Twitter, and the list goes on and on and on. I've known Fred for many years, and I'm excited to dive into this conversation. Fred, thanks so much for being my guest here on the podcast. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So... Um, we had you over to our new office uh, probably about a month ago or so, and we were kind of, you know, we were having one of our legendary happy hours here, and you were checking out the new office, um, and you had been on my, you know, list of potential guests for a while, um, and you said something interesting. You said, you know, I'd love to come on your show and talk about why architects should embrace and use project managers, and I was like, you know what, that that's that's the perfect topic because I'd love to delve into that a little bit more. Um, you know, there are some great things and we see a lot of value in a lot of the project managers that we we work with directly, especially when it comes to like the quantity surveying and the, the budgets. Um, and then there are sometimes we work with project managers where it's like, you know, we're not exactly sure why they're on the job or the budgets are all off and now it's our problem, our fault, right? Um, I think a lot of the architect, architect audience part of this podcast would say that architects gave up the project management. They should have never given that up as part of our services. How did this happen? All that sort of stuff. So so why should we hire a project manager? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's a lot of information. Um, so I'll, I'll start with a little story, okay, just to kind of give you a little idea of kind of where I come from on this on this approach. So I grew up uh, in a family full of lawyers, um, both on the political, on the politics side of it, but also on the private sector, and on the government sector as well. And uh, the issue always came up about uh, lawyers or people that represent themselves, lawyers specifically that represent themselves. And my grandfather and my father used to say the same thing, which was 
uh, a lawyer that represents himself has a fool for a client. <laughs> okay. And I have extrapolated that into the tenant world, saying, uh, into the interiors world, which is saying a tenant and or an architect that represents themselves in a project are really doing themselves and their clients a disservice. Because there is a perception in most instances that the architect is going to protect their work product as part of the project. So if there are issues that develop, if there is a set of drawings that maybe isn't exactly perfect, um, is the architect going to own up to those mistakes? Are they going to push those mistakes onto the tenant from a cost perspective and from a schedule perspective? So that was, uh, you know, what generated this idea that in a real life situation and in almost every other uh, aspect of the business world, there is an audit or a what you would consider to be a risk mitigation process. And that's what we're doing. It's not about creating an adversarial relationship. It's quite the opposite. It's about embracing the process, making sure that everybody's on board, making sure that we bend through the drawings and the drawings reflect what the client wants. And sometimes in the architectural process, when you're going through preparing the drawings, especially the construction drawings, there's a defined deadline. You have to complete them by a certain date because we have to go to bid, we have to build it, and we got to get the client moved in. So in that regard, we should be seen as augmenting the process, not becoming a thorn in the side of the architectural firm, firms or take money away because we're really not. We're allowing you to do what you guys do and we're going to step in and do what we do. It's really, it's, it's really synergistic. It is not uh, adversarial in any ways. And if it's created as an adversarial relationship, it's done, done so for a particular reason. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And listen, at, at the end of the day, I, I think a lot of the PMs that we work with, um, they come at it with that same team approach, right? We're all on the same team. We are in this together. We want to deliver the best product for the client at the end of the day. And it's always, for us, it works out quite well because you do do a lot of the things that we're not good at. And I'm, you know, I'm critical of, of architects on this podcast, not, not to just be a jerk, but to, to say what we do well and what we don't do well. And one of the things that we don't do well is necessarily meet deadlines all the time uh, and at a level of completion that we should have. And there's many reasons that go into that. Um, sometimes the schedule is just unrealistic or, you know, decision, right, decisions <laughs> weren't made um, in a timely manner. And so you can really help with that, I think, um, and be that, you know, that person pushing both the client and the architect. And then on the cost side, I mean, we stink at cost. We have no idea how much anything costs. I don't care what we say. We really don't. And to have someone as a backup in there truly costing as we go makes the design and the client much better at the end of the day. Cost is always uh, a major issue uh, for most clients these days, schedule being the second. But, you know, we're in a different environment now, right? COVID has put a even more pressure on the architects uh, to perform because they're unclear of what materials, what uh, equipment are actually available to meet the deadline of the project. They're going through the process. They're understanding what exists out there and what would make sense for the client. Somebody still needs to offer a certain amount of clarity and gut check, if you will, yeah. to what what we can actually do. You want these beautiful doors. You want this, you know, this great millwork. Can we produce that in time in order to make the schedule? So again, it's not about telling the client what they can have. I mean, look, we've I, we've you. 
I'm sure you've been in meetings with owners reps when they say to the client, you guys come up with a beautiful DD package. And I look at the client and go, you can't afford that. That's not in your budget. And everyone, <laughs> everyone goes like, oh, like why? <laughs> or really, we can't afford it. But it's part of what we do is set the expectations before that that yeah. process begins. Yeah. Because look, there's the city is filled with great architects, right? Great designers. The best architects, the most successful architects and designers listen to their clients and they generate a design based on what the client is looking for. And some clients don't know. Mm -hmm. So now it's a matter of just guiding them. But that guiding can become almost overly time consuming for yeah. the architect. You spend too much time pulling the information out of the client and not enough time. You, then you run out of time. And look, what we've done in the industry as owners reps is we drive prices down for a lot of the consultants because we say we are going to manage them. We are going to take over the, 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 the project management responsibility for you, the client. But we did that in order to keep the prices down because look, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, architects made a different you know, cost per square foot than they do today. And I had lunch with a mechanical contractor a couple of weeks ago, uh, someone I've known for a long time, and I didn't realize how um, passionate he was about the owner's rep world. And the first thing he said to me when we sat down at lunch was, you guys have effed up the business. <laughs> and I stopped and I went back and I said, what? can we talk about that for a second? Like, what do you really mean about that? He goes, you've done nothing but drive down prices for everybody involved in the in the uh, the construction and design business. Architects may make less money. Engineers make less money. Subcontractors, subcontractors make less money. And, and, and you've done nothing but 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 actually hurt the quality of the jobs. So it's hard to hear those things, right? Because sure. he is a major subcontractor in in the uh, in New York City. And so I stopped him and I said, well, you may think that we've driven down the prices, but maybe we've actually right-sized the prices. But also on projects that I've been involved with, if you can justify your cost as to why this is important, I've rarely had a client that hasn't accepted that. It's about the way you deliver the message. It's upfront delivery of the message. It's not post delivery of the product and then tell them how much it costs. Yeah. Right. So what really we've done is we've reined in this, what I would consider to be open-ended design process, which also had an open-end cost. So we set the bar, we set the guidelines early on. Here's what you're tasked to do, you, right? And if you have a question or concern about whether or not there's a cost associated with that, our team, our cost management team, or if we have gone out with a, with a construction manager versus a GC bid, we'll pull in whoever we need to pull in to, to, to evaluate what we think we can do to meet the client's expectations. And when you do that, you are way, your ability to be successful at the back end of it and your ability to issue what would be otherwise viewed as an unnecessary ad service or a change order, sure. it kind of goes away. Because people are now understanding what the genesis of those changes and those additional costs are. What I hear from clients every day is, I'm, I don't, I'm not saying they didn't do the work, Fred. I'm saying I didn't know they were doing the work and I had no chance, no opportunity to tell them not to do the work. Interesting. Right. And then here's the other part. So that sounds great. So now you just go and ask the client, uh, you know, you ask the architect, give me a proposal for the work. Right. So now they don't do anything. <laughs> they send the proposal. They don't do anything. 
Two weeks later, the client responds back saying, okay, good to go. Is this still going to be ready Thursday? And you're like, we didn't even start. Right. So now we're delayed again. So it's that process of really working through all of the nuances before you even start to do the design, before you start to to uh, you know to pull together what is the semblance of their of their overall you know project, and that's what we're good at. That's yeah. what we can do. We I feel like we should be guiding, not saying no or not saying you can't do that or this is what you should be doing. If we build the team and everybody's together, when there are mistakes, when there are issues, and there always we miss stuff. You guys miss stuff. Yeah. Everybody misses things. When the team is a team, everybody looks past it. When the team is fragmented or they've been they've been put against each other, nobody agrees on those changes. And it, it changes the nature of the relationship. Yeah. It's the old liquidated damages approach. Right. If you don't trust the people you're, you know, you've just hired, what's the point? <laughs> That's right? right. That's right. And it's funny, I was gonna I was gonna tell a little bit of a story here about and it, it fits perfectly. The first proposal that I ever wrote uh, myself, right? I, I, I remember it was a client I had brought in. I was a, a younger designer, not at Mancini. It was before Mancini. And I had to write the proposal myself and figure out the fee myself. And I remember that, you know, I figured out all the hours and the per square foot price came to something like absurd. Like I want to say like $15 a foot. And I remember the managing partner saying to me, look, there's no way you could go in with this number. You know, that might be what you think it's going to take. And that might very well be what it's going to take to get the job. But if you don't go in at the $8 a foot, you know, um, per square foot price, you're not going to get this job. And what I find interesting about that is now here I am as the managing partner and I'm telling <laughs> the people here, but I'm telling it for much less. I'm saying, you know, that was 20 years ago. You know, now I'm telling people you've got to be in under $4 a foot, you know, if you really want to get this job. And it's a tough, it's a tough thing because for us, you know, we want to provide a level of service. We, um, you know, we, we have obviously the professional, you know, liabilities that are, that are all part of that. Um, you know, salaries are much higher than they were 20 years ago. Rent is four times the amount. Um, inflation for an architect or engineer is kind of irrelevant. It doesn't really matter if prices go up on the professional services side. Um, so I guess what is, you know, how do we kind of fix that per square foot and go more to the value side of things? And then, you know, how, um, I guess, how do you guys come up with the number before, you know, you're meeting with the client and how do you say like, okay, we've budgeted X amount for the architect, for the engineer, for the carpeting, for the whatever, right? How do you explain that process a bit? Yeah. So we're still a square foot, rentable square foot driven business, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're never going to get away with that, nor do I think we should get away from that because that yeah. is a great benchmark, but it is a starting point. It isn't an end point. So most of the time, which I have found is a little bit more successful when you when you were going out to an RFP, for instance, for architectural services, to not ask for fee up front. Just simply ask for your credentials, your qualifications. Show us what you can do. We'll give you a little bit of information. Come in, meet the team, right? Now, there's a little bit, some clients have a concern about that. They're like, well, how do I know we don't select an architect that's going to be really expensive, <laughs> uh, 20 bucks a square foot? Right. And I said, well, because we won't put an architect on this 
process in this process who's going to charge you 20 bucks a square foot right we have already had a sense of these architectural firms because we work with them but more importantly i want to build the team i want you to understand what they're about meet their pm meet their designer meet their executive find out who's actually going to be involved in the process and when you do that without having the cost associated with it up front and center you find that people tend to gravitate towards the people they have a better comfort level with. That is what builds the better team. We never put an architectural firm up in front of anybody who isn't incredibly talented. They're all, all of you guys are talented, right? So it doesn't come down to your fee versus someone else's fee. It comes down to your synergy with the client. Oftentimes in those interviews, I'm not there. Hmm. My team is not there. We want the client to interview the architectural firm. We do it with engineers. We do it with contractors, right? Um, Not to say we don't prep them before they go in there, (laughs) but we do like to have that approach, which is this is your deal. And at the end of it, when they select, let's say they come out, they go, loved Christian from Mancini. Loved him. We want to move forward with them. Can we afford them? So then you and I have that conversation. Right. Which I'd much rather They really like it. They liked you guys. And by the way, if they really like you guys, the fee can be more based on that Mm -hmm. than just based on what the loan number was. Right. Right? Right. And if I don't have other numbers in front of them, they can't come back and say, by the way, I want to go with Mancini, but Architect Y was four bucks a square foot cheaper. Can we get them to match that price and move forward with them? That is a real issue. That to me feels a little bit more like price shopping, right? Than quality shopping. Now, having said all that, (laughs) there's a lot of times we just price shop. We know we have a design. We know we have to get good set of drawings out, but you're going to pay upfront. You're going to pay the right number. Are you going to get a really low ball number and you're going to continually pay? That's where the system breaks down. Somebody comes in at four bucks a square foot and within the first 90 days on the job, they've had two ad services, right? The design has changed. The schedule is extended. Engineering ad services because they changed the design. All those things happen. Maybe if we were, if we paid a different fee structure, those changes are just handled. Right. They're not then adjusted to say, oh, that's another that's another thirty or forty thousand dollars. Exactly. Because we cut you so tight on the original deal that you don't have the ability to throw a couple more hours at it. Right, right. No, and and so, so a firm like ours, right? We're all we're all about the relationship. We want to have a good relationship with you. We want to have a good relationship directly with the client that we're working with. We want to have a good relationship with the engineer. And so we try to make sure that our fee encompasses all of that. So the littlest thing that you know we don't have to immediately throw up our hands and say, "Oh, that's a change. We need to get paid extra for that." Right. Because to me, that's the kind of thing in a relationship where if we're in a relationship. You're not going to nickel and dime me because then, you know, five years from now, you're going to have another project. Ten years from now, you're going to have an even bigger project. You may have other locations. And if we can get all those things moving in sequence, well, then it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. Right. And right. that extra, you know, a couple grand that I asked for for some silly task that realistically only took me an hour to do. You know, I didn't piss everybody off on, on the way there. So I, I agree with that. But I understand why why firms you know, like you guys have to do it mm-hmm. because you're, we, it, there is this push for, uh, for a low cost mm-hmm. at the same quality. And 
you know, what that contract, what that subcontractor was telling me was we, you, je- you jeopardize the, the quality of the job by driving, by driving the profit down. Yeah. Right. The cost of tin is the cost of tin. The, cro- the cost of sheetrock is the cost of sheetrock. We can, we can argue, we can debate whose price is better, but at the end of the day, those are hard costs that we can justify. Yeah. Right? From, from our perspective, mm-hmm. I'd say that you're probably not going to lose the design quality but you may lose it in the construction documents and, at that point. And that's, you know, cuz we don't have the hours to do it. Correct. And <laughs> and that's where the rubber meets the road. Yep, so if you exactly. have right, if you have great design drawings, but when it goes out to bid and and let's be let's be completely clear. Every subcontractor that gets a set of construction drawings knows exactly where the gaps are. Mm-hmm. They know exactly what is missing. They can't price it and they can't tell you because they become they lose their competitiveness. So as soon as you award, that subcontractor goes back to the GC or the CM and says, by the way, you got to hold at least a $100,000 allowance for what's missing in those drawing sets. Yeah. Right. And that's another problem we have. We don't engage as partners. And that's why, again, uh, I don't know how you guys feel about it. I'd be curious to hear, but I am a firm believer that if, if you hire a good owner's rep project manager, um, if, then you can, we understand the process very well with the contractors, uh, with the architects, with the engineers. Um, and it's not, a, it's, it's engaging and working with versus oversight, mm-hmm. right? But when you guys are tasked with construction drawings and in order to save time, you send your backgrounds out to every to every consultant at the same time. Realistically, we shouldn't do that. The mechanicals should go first. The sprinklers should go second. Lighting should go third. We should be building that layer, but we don't allow you to do that because we tell you, you got to do it in six weeks. Right. (laughs) Right. So you have to do it. And then on jobs, on the job site, it's filled with conflicts. The lights don't fit. Look, I just did a job now. We had, you know, good architect, great architect, great contractor, uh, 50,000 square feet of space. There were 127 ceiling conflicts. <laughs> that takes time to resolve. Yeah. And if we would have taken a slightly different approach, we probably still would have asked for more time, but we would have asked for it up front, you know, versus the back end of it. So, so how do you guys want us to help that process, right? Because it can't be just us. I can drive a schedule any which way, right? I can push and push and push. And eventually people are going to tell me what they want me to hear. Mm-hmm. They're not going to tell me the truth. So so for it's an interesting question because we also do need input from the mechanical engineer very early on, actually probably even sooner than we think we do, mm-hmm. right? We need to know what the ceiling heights could realistically be. We really need to know, are you going to, is there some sort of massive duct that's got to go through the space and then we have to branch off from that if we know, and, and which way is more efficient to do that? If we know that ahead of time, kind of very early, early on in the design, then we can begin to design around that, right? Yeah. Then we would love a pause to actually develop, get things to a certain place, then give you those backgrounds. And you're absolutely right. Where we are, where I would say, you know, again, if I go back to that 20 years ago example, I'd have 12 weeks for construction documents where now, because I'm given basically a start date and an end date, 
I'm left with six weeks of construction documents, which is totally unrealistic because I need the first four weeks alone to just produce the backgrounds. And then I'm giving half-assed backgrounds to the engineers and they're just kind of throwing things in there and it's all just, there's errors compounding on errors and so on. We use the technology that we've developed and the other technologies that are there to try to find all those conflicts ahead of time. Right. But they may not have even been figured out by the time they're in those drawing sets. So yeah, that's really what happens is you compound errors with other yeah, errors. Exactly. Because everybody then needs to redraw. Yeah. And everyone's going to come back and say, you got to pay me to redraw. Yeah. So if you say to your client, hey, these I know you want to move in on this date, but realistically, if you moved in a month, two months later, you probably could save all of these headaches, all of this money. I mean, it's much easier, it's much cheaper to change something on paper than it is to change it while you're standing there going, oh, yeah, that doesn't work. How are we going to get around that beam? How are we going to get around that ductwork? Um, so it's really more, or as a team, we say to them, look, you're, I know this is what we said and you got to do what you got to do to get the job. But realistically, we've got to be able to, if you want this to go well, we need more time. Yeah. Um, interesting, we, you know, approach to all this is, uh, you know, uh, I work very closely with brokers all the time. Obviously they're doing the transaction side of the project and, mm-hmm. Some of them have gotten comfortable with engaging us much sooner. Um, and there's a cost associated with that, right, to the client. Uh, or if the broker is picking up some of the fee, there's a cost to the broker to do that. But what we used to say is a rule of thumb, and brokers still go by this, 12 months. 12 months from the time you go out in the market to find something to the time you can move in. It's really not 12 months, right? right. It's really longer. Mm-hmm. And they have longer, right? Like their, their process of going through – and identifying what the client needs are, and then extrapolating that into a plan, then going out to out to buildings. That process is better set with an architect and a PM early, mm-hmm. because that twelve months can actually become fourteen or fifteen months, and gives you that pause, yeah. and lo- allows you to build the, it allows you to deliver backgrounds in a more. Um, you know, kind of a more organized process rather than everybody, 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 everybody. You're constantly going back and forth. Yeah. So we, I've been, so the brokers ask me all the time, we're hearing crazy things on supply chain. This is not about supply chain, I realize. But in order for us to offset supply chain, it's not about, people say, oh, just uh, just buy it early, right? Right. I said, well, what are we buying? Somebody right. has to draw <laughs> and has to tell us what we're buying or else if we're waiting for the CDs, what's the point? Exactly. Right? So, again, we need to get people engaged sooner in this in, in this economy right now to do things early so we can pre-purchase. So, yeah. we can uh, purchase long lead items well in advance of when we actually need them. Then we do actually save. We can make schedules. We Absolutely. can make budget. But it's more expensive. It is just more expensive to do that. People are engaged longer, which means that their cost is higher. Yeah. Absolutely. So anytime you extend someone's involvement, you're in fact extending the cost yep. a little bit. Yep. So those are things that we try and balance. How early? What's too late? What's too <laughs> early? What's useless? What's not useless? Right. So we have to we have to go through and balance that situation. So you brought up the broker relationship and JLL is obviously brokerage, project management, and all those other things. Um, massive organization, 
um, full disclosure, our broker. Yes. <laughs> when we when we found our our office space and same in Jersey. Um, and so, you know, I always hear that there is, and listen, this could be, this is obviously all individual personalities, but I always hear the brokers don't want to use the internal project managers because there's too much at risk, right? That the, uh, the broker, all the broker cares about is that they sign that, that client sign that lease and that 10 years later, 15 years later, they're going to come back to them and sign another lease. And anything in between that is associated with them could just be money out of their pocket in the future Correct. and whatever, right? Um, I don't see that with you, obviously. I don't see that with certain other, like there's some people at CBRE that are, right. you know, you definitely don't see that. Some of the brokers that, that we know in common are very collaborative in that respect. But what's your, what's your stance on that? I mean, that is... Um, I would date myself a little bit. The sixty-four thousand dollar question. <laughs> no, it's probably sixty-four million dollar question. But um, so the there's there's a couple of approaches to this, right? So along to, when brokerage firms began to embrace the owners' rep, the project managers, as part of their offering, it never really went very far from a brokerage perspective. Um, and yes, for all the reasons that you just talked about. There's more downside than there is upside to it. If it works out and we augment it, we make them look great. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. But it's not always as simple as that. So we have to get away from the idea of walking around, stepping in front of the brokerage with our hands out saying, I want, I want, to, get, I want to get hired to run this project. Because that's where the problem comes in. What we have to do, which is what we spent, which I spent a lot of time doing, is building the relationship with the brokers. And it's not about get me hired, get me hired. It's about how can I get you hired? Mm -hmm. What can I do for you to help you get hired more often and make more money? Right. Um, and it sounds easy, but it's not, right? Because they've been doing it for a long time. They all have a perception that they know cost, they know construction, <laughs> they know design. Right. They have their own series of relationships with a variety of different consultants and subcontractors and oftentimes contractors. Right. So they're all trying to work like, how can I be my own person, my own rep, only be in front of my clients. Right. And get this deal done. Mm -hmm. We have to show our relevance. We have to make it valuable to them. And some brokers will never win. We just won't get we won't make up any ground. For lots of them um, who are maybe in their first 10 years of brokerage life, we have a tremendous amount of information. You guys have a tremendous amount of information that is absolutely essential for them to prove to their clients that they are the best fit for that project or potential clients, I should say. So it's really, it's really about showing our value and not saying how we want to get paid right. and who's going to pay us, right? right? We, have to, we have to stay away from that. Look, there's plenty of work I go at, I go after that is not brokerage specific. And oftentimes, you know, my goal is to get paid for that work. Right. With the brokerage, I'm better. JLL is better. Any brokerage house is better if there's a better integration of the PM side and the brokerage side. Yeah. But it's, um, it is a work in progress. And I don't know if we ever get right. to where we need to be. Right. But it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> right. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. 
What um, if you had to pick one thing? What annoys you about architects? When they when they don't listen to what the project goals are, and a project goal isn't beautiful space. It's not beautiful space by X date. It's not beautiful space within this budget. Their goal is a little bit more complicated. Uh, and I don't think we do enough time upfront truly understanding our clients. We say we do. We ask for programming information. We ask for all sorts of, of cognitive requirements. What do you need? What are you looking for? But we don't spend enough time Architects typically don't spend enough time sitting with the client talking about their business. What do you do? Why do you do it? Why is this important to you? Why is this, why is branding important to you? Why is AB important to you? And it sounds like we do it. It sounds simple and we do it. And then we're oftentimes undone by what the architect will come back with. Interesting. Right. So I think that if there's this, there's this approach, which is before we spend any of your money, we need to understand you better. Yeah. Right. Some clients don't want to be understood. They want you to do what they, what you tasked to do. And you can't, we can't change it. But a lot of the clients, I sat down, I have one client who is, and I'm seeing clients that are now outside of the construction and real estate business, chief people officer, CFOs, mm-hmm. um, chief marketing officers who aren't in the construction business. When I first started in this business, every single client I had was in the construction real estate <laughs> business. Now that's not the case. Right. So you have to spend a little bit more time explaining, not over explaining, because that's a problem too, but just making sure that they understand what our goal is. And if your goals align, right? And if the architect goals align, if they just if we if we just make it a habit of saying of taking a breath, a pause, I think we'll all be better off. We get hired, boom, go right at it. Client says, I want uh, a schematic in you know two weeks, preliminary schematic in two weeks. What are you drawing? Right. And people use that schematic as a method of gathering that information. So now you go through multiple iterations of schematic design to get to the one that you ultimately like. Yeah. You could have cut out a lot of hours and a lot of time if we would have done a little bit more background work before we started doing that. Yeah. I mean, listen, it it comes back down to the schedule and the timing on everything again, because back, you know, back 20 years ago, back in my day, right? right, This is where we're going to sit here and talk like that. But it's true. There were, there were projects that I worked on where I would go and spend a week at the client's office, Mm. observing them, how they worked, meeting different people, just, and I knew by the time those projects were done, I knew everything about them. I knew why the accounting office needed to be where it was, who they reported to, what their right. structure was, why they needed X amount of filing, you know, practically where they wanted to, you know, put their toothbrush in their desk, right? I mean, you knew everything about them and you're right now you just, it is, it's go. So we've developed here at Mancini a, a, a new piece of a new our newest piece of technology, which we're, we haven't revealed yet, but it really is a programming and visioning app 
that kind of puts the power into a lot of individuals at those companies so that we can start to gather that information up really, really quickly. And it's like a very creative way of doing it. So as we, you know, as we develop that, I'll, I'll show it to you because I'd love to hear your input on that because it does try to alleviate some of that, those unknowns on the business side. Yeah. And, and, you know, businesses for whatever reason have been reluctant to engage too many people within their organizations to find out what they're doing and how, what, how they're using their space. I mean, I'll, Use a real life example. I, I sat in front of a client. It was a pitch, a big, uh, a large project for brokerage, our workplace team, and BM team, my team. Um, and we sat across from the person, uh, their chief uh, people officer, and we were talking about the hybrid uh, work environment. And that person actually said, I don't care what they want their schedule to be. We want them here five days a week. <laughs> And everyone kind of, you know, sat back and digested it. Um, and at the end of the day, I was shocked to hear that type of commentary given where we are today. Yeah. Right. And we've heard some of the large CEOs of the financial institution world saying they want people back five days a week. And everyone goes, OK, OK, OK. But they're not really back five days a week. Yeah, I do. I do want to touch on sort of post-pandemic office in yeah. a bit for sure, because it's a fascinating topic. And I think there's some I pulled a few statistics that we could talk about. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. What and then I want to hear a little bit about your backstory. But, you know, you see a lot of architects give presentations, um, you know, do those pitches to try and win jobs. You know, I guess when have you seen an architect totally fall on their face, and what 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 advice do you have mm -hmm. for for us as architects to you know when we're pitching different clients? Um, yeah, it's really good. I I I don't see a lot fall on their faces. Okay, um, it's good. rare. <laughs> it's rare. Sometimes it's it's um, that's helpful to me because I don't have to consider them. The client doesn't <laughs> consider them anymore. Right. It's a little bit uh, more that challenging. Was a disaster. <laughs> exactly, we'll get rid of them. But when there's four architectural firms or five, and the client says they're all great, <laughs> right now it's like oh, I was kind of hoping we would find one that wasn't so great, and that. But um, it's usually what it really comes down to is preparation. Did you do you? Who's the client? It doesn't take a lot in today's day and age to understand to read a little bit about about clients. You can go to sites like Glassdoor and find out what their recruiting strategy is, what their internship strategy is. You can, if they're publicly traded, you can look at their 10Ks. You can, you can find out a lot of information about a client. And you know, law firms, that's the single biggest issue with law firms is they speak a different language than mm -hmm. corporate America does. And people come in and pitch them as a corporate America. And, it, and they don't, the, the, the terminology is different. Right. The colloquialisms are different. Sure. They speak differently. And, it, and if you understand them and you can actually engage them at their level, you're more likely to be successful. Um, even if maybe what you showed from a design perspective isn't as great as somebody else. Hmm. But if they go in there and they start talking about something that law firms aren't accustomed to talking about or is irrelevant to a law firm, even the design may be beautiful to the law firm. It's like they don't understand the business. Right. So that's a that's a particular sector, though. But for the most part, it's just not having done some homework. Who's sitting across from me from the table? Everyone says, oh, I don't want to see that. They, I don't want them to see that I that I looked at them on LinkedIn. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Who would think that that isn't an appropriate 
exactly. uh, you know, option when you're going to sit across from somebody is to say, you don't have to send them a connection you know, request. You could just simply evaluate what their experience is. Mm-hmm. I think it's really uh, powerful to be able to do that. Where did you come from? Oh, did you know this person? I mean, there's so many different ways to build relationships. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think when law, when architectural firms do fall down, it's because they haven't they they haven't embraced who their client is. Interesting. I like Same that. with us, that's by right. the way. Same with us. Yeah. Walk into a pitch, not know not really understand what that client does. It's just a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, that's great advice. I love it. I love it. Um, how did you get started in this industry? That is uh that's very interesting. So I was, I mentioned earlier, my family are lawyers. So I was programmed to be a lawyer. Um, and I went through, uh, I went to college uh, and I uh, took the LSATs and applied to law schools and was accepted to law schools. And at the last minute, I've been thinking about it for probably over a year. I decided that maybe I wanted to take a long and hard look at what it meant to take three more years of education and frankly, three more years of debt to pay for that education and what in fact I would be doing as a lawyer. I knew what my parents, you know, what my dad did, my grandfather, my brother, my cousins. So I decided to work for a year as a paralegal. So I came to New York, got a job uh, for a law firm downtown working as a paralegal and uh, was going to spend a year there and then decide about law school or go to business school or something. I ended up spending nine years there. And I ended up spending nine years uh, transforming into an administrative person. So it took me out of kind of the paralegal role. I actually had developed a relationship with the firm's managing partner and the executive director. And they kind of helped build a different career for me, which was law firm administration. So I left there to go to a small firm. And then I left there to go to Winston and Strawn, where I was for over 12 years. Um, And at Winston... My first day on the job, I had to step into the middle of their construction and relocation from lower Manhattan to Midtown. That was really the first construction job site I had actually ever been on uh, at that size, 160,000 square feet. Um, And that's when I got hooked. (laughs) And that's when my focus changed. That was uh, 1995. Um, And what what ultimately happened is Towards the end of my 12 years, uh, the last six years I was there, I traveled across the globe. Um, Every time they would purchase another law firm or merge with another law firm, I would go in and adjust both the administrative and and organizational infrastructure, but also the real estate and either uh, modify their space, dispose of their space and build out new space. And I did that all across the U.S. and in Europe and even Asia. Oh, wow. uh, and then, uh, so as that was kind of winding down, I had an opportunity to go to another law firm. And I'll be honest, the travel became very, very yeah. uh, debilitating in some ways. Great in the beginning, but debilitating <laughs> towards the end. I took a, a job with another law firm um, and I ran a lot of construction for them. They were smaller in terms of off number of offices, larger in terms of lawyers, but larger offices. Anyways, during that process, I began to uh, I began to evaluate: was this the the environment that I really wanted to be in? It's a it's a challenging environment. It's a very complicated sure. and politically motivated environment. Um, and I had an opportunity to um, go out on my own. I had several people in the construction and the architectural industry who were very supportive of me starting my own owner's rep firm. Um, and, but there were quite a few, even, even that, 
This was uh, 2008, 2009. And uh, so I decided to do it. I had a couple of built-in clients. Uh, I had a very different model. My model was more to be the hired gun for other uh, PM firms or owner's reps, where if they needed support or they didn't have enough uh, people to run projects or senior level people to run projects, they could con they could con contract with me. I would run that project under their umbrella, seemingly their person. And then when that project was over, go on my way. Okay. So they didn't have to have the investment and in, in, in someone of my of my experience per se, except that they had a, an actual project for me to work on. Um, and I, I had developed some relationships with a couple of the brokers at JLL. One day we just happened to be at the same uh, place having lunch. And they were like, you should come and work for us. Uh, and that's, that's I, I think I had grown a little weary of, uh, of uh, running my own business. Uh, just, I was great at the projects. I was uh, not so great at finding <laughs> the next project. Uh, well, so you got to do a, the work. Someone's got to find the work. Exactly. It's hard to do both. Yeah, exactly. I, so it just seemed I like a nice, it. like a really nice opportunity then to switch to jail. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in Buffalo. Okay. So yeah, diehard Bills and Sabres fan, sadly, but yes. <laughs> What's been your favorite project so far at uh, at JLL? Um, Doesn't have to be favorite, but you know. Uh, you know, I've had lots. I've been really lucky. I've had some great clients, but I would say um, Carlisle Capital uh, during COVID uh, while they were finishing uh, constructing one Vanderbilt to also yeah. then be building the interior. Uh, for them, uh, over the over about two hundred thousand square feet. Wow, um, it's a beautiful building. Very challenging project. Great client. Um, a very interesting team uh, because everyone was remote, uh, and then trying to get that project done. And we actually, we actually delivered that project on time. Um, and uh, I remember opening day, uh, just before Christmas. Fifteen people showed up. We built the space for over a thousand people. Oh, Fifteen no. people showed up, but uh, we felt good at least that we got it. That we, you know that we got the space done. But yeah. that, that that was a recent, very rewarding project. That's great. So let's talk about that. Let's talk a little post pandemic. Um, you know, and I, I'm just going to look at some of my notes here because you know, as the weeks and the months have passed since COVID, you know, I see. You know, at beginning of COVID, I was pretty con convinced that, you know, that's it. Office space is dead. Nobody's ever coming back, especially to New York City. And, you know, we're in almost at year three now. And New York City is very different from where it was even at the beginning of this year. Um, it's very vibrant right now. There's a big culture. You know, there's lots of people on the street. People seem to be in offices. This building in particular, there seems to be a lot of activity um, so there's a lot of hope for offices and I see more and more people coming back to the office. I don't, I agree. I don't think it'll ever truly be five days a week, but I think you're going to start seeing companies push to five days a week. And, you know, I, I, I understand the benefits of working from home. I understand the, the, you know, the commute, I understand the lack or the, the productivity is better, um, but I also think there is a downside for society at the end of the day that, you know, offices are where young professionals establish relationships and mentors and colleagues and future husbands and wives or partners, whatever right. that might be. But my wife at work, you know, I know some people here have met their, you know, future spouses, you know, that worked here at Mancini, um, you know, and especially in New York City, that sort of 
office culture, um, and I'm not talking about individual company cultures, but just being at the office in the office buildings and then going out for the happy hours. Right. There's a there's a certain um, when you're young, that's an amazing time, and it's really kind of scary that a lot of people aren't experiencing experiencing that, and I think that that's pretty sad. Um, there's a Harvard business study that I just read um, that says work from home is more productive, um, but there are more people depressed, lonely, and becoming addicted uh, to drugs and alcohol as a result of being as working from home. So, you know, it's, it's also a transfer of wealth in society. Right. I mean, there's a lot of lot of negative mm-hmm. aspects to it that I don't think I've really thought about recently. I'm just curious as to what your you know, what your opinion is on that, what some of the companies you work with think of that. Yeah, we, um, you know, I go back to when I first started my career and the first uh, job I had where they allowed us to wear uh, non-business uh, attire <laughs> on a Friday, right? And they said, can't be jeans, but it can't be sneakers, but it doesn't have to be a suit and tie, right? And everyone's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then, of course, over years, it became jeans and it, it kind of extrapolated. I, I had a lot of media clients when I had my own firm and uh, they were always casual. So I think what we missed, and I, I'm not going to say COVID brought opportunities, but in a way it did. It made us rethink. It made us adjust that pendulum, right? Life to me is always a pendulum. It swings. It rarely is just static in the middle where it stays. It's always swinging a little bit higher in this direction than in this direction. It's just the nature of the way I think the world operates, the way people are social and things change. So I like the idea of having some opportunity to work from home. I like the idea because it gives me some flexibility for, you know, uh, you know, you know, I have a puppy, I have a son, I have a doctor's appointment, I have any number of things. I can see my parents, my aged parents, I can spend more time with them when I need to. I don't have to worry about being away from the office. So I think all of those pieces have become very important to us socially. And I also think that it opened our eyes to a little bit about who our colleagues were, right? Because for so long, it was almost taboo to ask about someone's home life. <laughs> what, did, what do they do? And like, but now in COVID on Zoom, we were suddenly faced or suddenly you know, it became apparent who these people that we called work colleagues, business colleagues, actually were like at home. We saw them interacting with their kids, with their dogs, with, their, with whomever. Yeah. And it, it made us feel a little bit more connected personally to people. And I think that's a really positive step for for business to be able to have empathy, right? We talk about empathy all the time, emotional intelligence, right? EQ, right? Those are things that you can only go so far without really understanding the person. And now we get a chance to understand the person. Could that have happened 20 years ago? I don't think so. People wouldn't have accepted it. People would have been closed off, right? No one should ever know what my what my life is, right? And maybe in certain cities and certain parts of the country, that's still true. In New York, people became more comfortable with having people see a little bit into their into their personal lives. I think that's huge. I will tell you, like you just you know mentioned, I think work from home is productive. 
I have no travel time, <laughs> right? I just, I, I go from one meeting to the next. And now when I've transitioned back to live meetings, I'm late all the time <laughs> because I haven't gotten back to being able to build my schedule properly to be able to get to these places in time to have the meeting. So I'm constantly apologizing. Sorry, I'm late. Sorry, I'm late. Sorry, I'm late. Um, but I think, uh, I, I think what hurts is the young, the, the more inexperienced part of our, uh, of our businesses who learn not just from working on a project, they oftentimes learn from the conversations that they're not a part of per se, that they're listening to mm -hmm. the interaction between a client and, and me, for instance, with a, with a young PM or an APM, um, sitting in the same room, listening to the conversation. It only goes so far over Zoom or over a telephone call. Yeah. So I think that's where we're falling down. I don't know if we are properly mentoring the less experienced people in our business uh, remotely. I don't think we've grasped how to do that well yet. Yeah. And and I you know maybe that transforms like everything else. But right now I see that as the big as the biggest loss. Yeah, I mean a friend of mine's son took a job with IBM, an amazing job, and it's a hundred percent work from home. And he was actually disappointed. Yeah. You know, he wants to listen, he doesn't want to go five days a week. I get it, but he'd like to go two or three and meet people and yeah. meet his colleagues and you know chum up to his bosses and learn from them. I mean there's a lot of things that I think we're missing. Yeah. From a design point of view with some of your clients, um, what do you see that sort of return to office, office space itself look like? Is it any different? Mm. Yeah, it's different and it's going to continue to be different. <clears throat> I mean, for 15 years, we've been building more collaborative office environments, right? Some with more success than others, some just beautiful what I call living room spaces that no one in their right mind would ever sit and actually utilize, <laughs> right? They just look great. Uh, but now people are using them. People are demanding a more residential feel and different from, from before COVID. And then in COVID, everyone said, oh my God, no one wants to sit next to people. Everyone wants to be, be socially distanced. But I have one client um, in the internet uh, world and uh, we have a few offices, um, but we built... Uh, what we call like living rooms um, and they feel like a living room. It's a couch, a couple of side chairs, a, a screen on the wall, open areas. And um, those have absolutely become crucial to their business. And people come back and they sit on these couches or sit in these chairs as a group or individually, right? And they, they work. Uh, and then, but we still have to produce heads down space where people can go and, and put their heads down and, and really concentrate. I sure. think some of this collaborative space is a concentration like, <laughs> nightmare, right? People can't focus on what they're trying to do. It is true. So you have to continually do that. But um, this idea of, uh, you know, you can do with fewer seats because people aren't in. Hoteling isn't doing well, right? Mm -hmm. This flexible seating where I can go in and pick a desk and go work at that desk for today. That isn't, I've had some clients who put those programs in place during COVID and they actually never rolled them out because people, that's not what people want. People want to be able to come in and have a general location, general area where their team is and be able to work comfortably in those areas. So every, you know, whether you call it a business unit or, or you know, accounting versus, you know, versus some of the other divisions within any organization, I think people like their groups. And they like to be comfortable with their group within that group. So 
it's actually in some ways adding additional square footage mm-hmm. uh, to it. And but maybe uh, of, of collaborative space, maybe the overall square footage has gone down. Yeah, you go from fifty to thirty-five, but where whereas your collaboration was only ten thousand initially, now it's twenty thousand. Yeah, that's changing. Um, but what we hear every day. The other thing is, which people, you know, don't really pay much attention to is take care of people's, you know, appetites, right? Give them food. Mm-hmm. Huge. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. Good coffee is still one of those things <laughs> that people talk about all the time. But we, I've seen some of my large corporate clients give uh, uh, pet care stipends. I've seen mm-hmm. them give uh, home office stipends where they're produ- they're not giving you equipment. They're giving you money to go buy equipment sure. for their home offices. Um, so people are starting to, to maybe look differently, but one thing is very clear. People want to come back and, you know, look, people, all these people that said they couldn't come to the office during COVID because of COVID were also the people out in Upper East Side, Upper West Side, Lower Manhattan every Friday and Saturday night, <laughs> right? So it wasn't, it wasn't the apprehension to COVID. It was rebellion on a five-day work schedule. It yeah. was, they were rebelling against the business model. Not the social model. And it was easy to say, oh, this is all about COVID. And there were a few people that wouldn't come in because of COVID. But a lot of people were out experiencing life during COVID, just not in the office. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So now if you can embrace them a little bit, give them some of that feel back in the office, I think people are more interested in coming in. Very well said. Outstanding. Um, so uh, is there anything that we haven't covered um, that you would want to talk about? You know, uh, th- there's a, 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 it's not a plug for the organization, but there's an organization we started during COVID called Owner's Rep Project Management Alliance, huh. ORPM Alliance. And we're kind of in the infancy of developing who we are a little bit. But the whole focus of the organization <clears throat> is to, um, is to uh, offer insight to the industry tenants, you know, specifically uh, why hiring an owner's rep is important, right? Um, and when to hire an owner's rep. And it's not selling any particular company or firm. It's really just saying, here's what we are good at, right? And here's why we're important. We alluded to it early. Yeah. I mean, we started this whole conversation about about what, what that process really should look like. Um, but I think we have to go further at some point. And I, I'd like to, to really um, address it's too long of a topic, but it might be another topic for somebody else in the industry who wants to talk about it, which is what, how are we going to change what we do? How are the owner's reps going to change what we do? Because we can't, it's different from when Bob Benison and and Joe Renahan started this 30 years ago. It's different from when, you know, VBA started and when Quattrero Associates started. We're a different group right now. We are, we have different requirements and responsibilities. We still have to evolve. We tell all you guys, we just sat here. I I told you how you need to change your business. We have to change our business too, but we, I think we don't do enough asking what can we do better as owners reps. I think that's a, that's a, that's a topic. Somebody has to address at some point. And we'll do a panel. We should, which would be a great idea. That'd be great. So what's the, what's the organization again? Uh, Owners rep. Project Management Alliance, ORPM okay. Alliance. Very nice. You can Congrats. find it on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, it, as I said, it's non, uh, it's uh, it's nonpartisan. Okay. Anyway, it's <laughs> very interesting. 
group, and it's all the top owners reps in the city. Well, that is the that's the, the the perfect place to leave it, and I think we definitely would want to do that as a as a roundtable because I love the topic of owners reps. I love the the collaborative spirit that yourself and many other owners reps, not only at JLL but in in, in many of the other companies like the VBAs and the GNTs, um, the more collaborative we can be, the better you know our clients are ultimately going to be, the happier we're all going to be. Um, and the happy our employees are going to be at the <laughs> yeah. end of the day. Yep. So, Fred, thank you so much for being my guest here today on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, to see and read more about Fred, um, you know, go and check out his his LinkedIn. Anything else in terms of plugs that you'd like to to talk about? No, I I, I think the um, I think this is this goes a long way and and explain showing people what a good owner's rep and I'm being a little bit uh, pat myself on the back here, but I've spent a lot of years understanding how this business works. And sometimes we are oftentimes um, relegated to a different role, a taskmaster role. Mm -hmm. And we are taskmasters, but we are really advisors at the end of the day. And if you get one thing out of what I've talked about is my relationship with my clients is a lot, all the top owners reps, they will tell you they are advisors. Their, their relationship with their clients is really paramount to the actual task at hand. Um, and so I think that those are, that, that's how we're trying to um, not separate ourselves, but be a part of the industry more yeah. is engaging, right? And we don't, we're not the same group of people we were. I was different 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, I think there's uh, way more we can do to improve the process as well. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you again. Sure. Thanks for having me.